0: If you have your Bible, why don't you turn with me to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We're going to read those verses today as we talk together about the joy of our salvation. Or sorry, the joy of our conversion. There's a lot of things on this pulpit right now and trying to remember what stays up here and what doesn't is a little bit of a task. So if you, if you turn there to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, why don't you stand with me in honor for King Jesus as we read his words here together. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Church family, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we readily joyfully confess together that this is not just man-made ideas and words that we hold here in our hands, but they are the words that you have breathed out by your very mouth. And as such, Lord, we know that it is good, that it is living and active sharper than a double-edged sword, Lord, that it is satisfying to us, sweeter than honey, that it is able to, to prepare us to be uh, a, a workman, that it does not need to be ashamed and rightly dividing the word of truth, that we would be men and women of God equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, would it delight you today to use your spirit working through your word in the hearts of your people for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, what is being a Christian all about? What if somebody asked you that question? What kind of answer would you give? I was thinking about this that, that this week. How would how would I answer that question? I think I would probably go to something very simple, something like Jesus died for our sins, or um, even thinking about like are there is there uh, like something like the Apostles' Creed, like listing through things that I know to be true, things that I that I that I hold deeply in my heart as as what the Bible says about uh, God and about Christ and what He's done. And then this kind of nagging question tails at the end. Well, is that is that everything? Is that is that this picture of what it means to be a Christian, what it, what Christianity is all about? Um, James 2 has a little bit of light to shed for us on this on this question. Because you, if you think about it, we've, we're, what we just did and what I know from my own heart that I, would, that I probably would do in this question would be to list out a list of things that I believe to be true. Things that I see in the scriptures. Things that, that, I, that I cherish there in my heart about, again, what I know and what I believe. But the problem with that is there's somebody else that knows and believes more than we do knows all the more in reality what we believe about the Bible and the gospel and all these things. They know these things to be true and it provokes a physical response in them. Who is that? Well, James tells us. says, you believe there is one God. You do well. The demons, even the demons, believe and tremble. So this very... Next verse answers that question. What makes us different from, from demons then? James says that the point of this is that faith without works is dead. But I want you to see faith and works. And there's there's something that's in between. There's something that bridges this gap between faith and works. There's something that takes faith based on the faith that was once for all handed down to us in the scriptures. Right? And then applies it in action, but not just any old action, in action in such a way, with such a motivation, with such a a thought, such an orientation that glorifies God, right? We've seen numerous examples from the Bible where people just tried to worship God in whatever way they thought was fit. And it didn't go well for them, did it? (laughs) And so there's something here that connects these two things together. And I submit to you that based on the testimony of this passage and many other places in the Bible that we're gonna see today, that that thing that's missing is the heart. When all is said and done, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And often it's something that this this thought of our our heartward more uh, orientation toward God, that that's usually the core of what's out of place in our lives when we wrestle with sin. It's usually uh, not what we believe or even what we're doing necessarily, but it's that connection between the two. Because I would think I I've, I've seen from experience in this church family that we we really focus in on having right doctrine, knowing with certainty what the scriptures teach. And we seek to the best of our ability to obey the scriptures. But I think in the church at large today, what the the problem is, is, in translation from faith to works, sometimes our heart's not in the right place as we work. Right? This is why Paul talks about even in giving, something that that, admittedly we as believers can struggle with at time to time. He said, God loves a cheerful giver. There's an, there's an orientation of the heart that's at work there, right? We struggle with our feelings, our convictions, our inner state. You know, Christianity would be so much simpler if it was, simpler it would be if it was all outward. If it was all just out here. But... Our emotional state, our inner convictions, our experience of life is not always what it should be. This is a great problem for us, and it's given in a lot of cases. It's, it's kind of pushed into us by our culture. We're taught by our culture that we need to be cool and detached from our faith, right? That's the culturally acceptable version of Christianity, right? What's good for you is good for you. Just keep it to yourself, right? We need to be aloof, reserved, and above all else, private, Right? That's not right. Saving faith is a heartfelt conviction that Christ not only is able to save, but that he is desirable. That he is precious. John Piper puts it this way. He said, faith is the, con- the confidence that he will come through with his promises and that what he promises is more to be desired than all the world behind the the repentance that turns away from sin and the faith that embraces Christ is this birth of a new passion for the pleasure of God's presence. That's why we're doing Psalm 1611 this month, y'all, right? In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this is this is the root of our topic today. You would think we would just be talking about heart, right? The word that we're going to use today and word we're going to talk about is conversion. The joy of our conversion. What does that word mean, by the way? That word conversion. Well, we use that word, uh, specifically it means to change or to turn. To change or to turn. We use it in our Christian vocabulary because back in the 1611... Which is weird that we're talking about this year, and we're also talking about Psalm 1611. That's just, that's weird to me. All right, here we go. So, but back in 1611, the translators of the King James Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, used that word, conversion, and used it in some really critical places. All right? Think about this. Psalm 51, passage that Brother Brock read for us today. Psalm 51, uh, verse 13, it says, "'Then I will teach transgressors your ways.'" and sinners shall be converted to you. Converted to you. Similarly, in Acts chapter 15, verse 3, Paul and Barnabas are reporting about um, about the, the conversion of the Gentiles. And this caused great joy, right? Great joy to all the brethren. Conversion is the visible result of what the Bible calls being born again. It's the visible expression of that inward change that took place. In this summer series, we've been talking about being a joy seeker. And we've been using this book by John Piper uh, loosely for um, idea and structure um, called Desiring God. And so today from chapter two, we're going to consider how do we find this inexpressible joy? How does it come to us? What is its source? What is this joy that he speaks of? Because this is what we need, right? This is the result that Piper says and that the Bible says is from conversion. Three points for us to consider today. That was a really long introduction. Let's move on. Um, We're going to talk about the nature of our conversion, the effect of our conversion, and the cause of our conversion. So let's start first with the nature. I just filled in all the blanks for you right there. So please hang on with me, all right? Again, uh, the nature of our conversion. Conversion is the visible result of being inwardly born again. We see that there in verse three of our passage. I hope you still have your Bible open. We're gonna keep coming back to 1 Timothy chapter one, or 1 Peter chapter one. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's that phrase. Begotten us again. To be born again. What does that mean anyway? According to Jesus, it it must be really important because he he says to Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus came to him in the night and says, Teacher, you nobody can do, you must be from God because nobody can do what you do unless they come from God. And Jesus doesn't say, well, thank you, brother. I sure do appreciate that. Just trying to do a little good in the world, you know. What does he say? He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Are we having two different conversations here, right? No, Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue, doesn't he? right? Unless one is born again because this was a problem for Nicodemus. You see, the Bible says that because of sin, all of our hearts are by nature dead, blind, hard, unfeeling, unable, and unwilling to submit to God and his law. Therefore, we are by nature, Ephesians 2 tells us, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But in Christ, the Holy Spirit brings us from death into life, right? From being dead or being an enemy at heart to God, he brings us to this place where we now don't see God as our enemy, but as Abba, Father, to the degree that we cry out to him, right? We are born again into a new life. And this isn't something that just Jesus says in the Gospels. It's throughout the Bible. It's foundational both to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remember when God brought his, his people out of Egypt? So he, he gives them the law. They're in Exodus. Then they they travel to the the promised land, they get right on the edge, and they rebel. And they say, we can't go in there, the people are huge, and they have fortified cities, they have chariots of iron, and all these kinds of things. We need to go back to Egypt, it's better in Egypt, right? Right? Egypt is better, right? And they walk away, and God says, okay, for the next 38 years, we're going to walk through the desert until each one of your bodies fall in the wilderness. And your children, the the ones you're so worried about, right? Our children, what will happen to our children? Your children are going to go into the promised land because they believe me. Ouch. And so right as they're about to go into the promised land, God gives them through Moses. He restates the law to them, reminds them of the covenant that he's made with them through Moses so he says this in Deuteronomy 36. In a point where he's giving law, I think this is interesting. He says, "The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live." Does that sound like law to you? That sounds like a promise to me. I like that. That's good stuff, right? God will do it, right? He says, the Lord your God will do this. He will change your heart so that you will love God. Jeremiah repeats this promise hundreds of years later in his book. He says in in chapter 24, verse 7, then I will give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and that they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and for they shall return to me with their whole heart. What about Ezekiel chapter 36 verses 26 and 27 he says I the Lord will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh I will give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So we see it moving throughout Scripture. We're thinking, okay, well, we're going to move into this new land. We're going to obey the Lord. We're going to do this. We're going to do this thing. We're going to pull ourselves up our own bootstraps. We're going to obey. And hundreds of years later, right before Babylon comes to destroy, Jeremiah is saying, I will, future tense, I will give you a new heart. The new covenant hasn't come yet. Ezekiel, a few years later, now in the Babylonian exile, people are people are thinking, what's happening? Why why has God abandoned us? I mean, we're we're in Babylon now. We're not in the pla- we're not in the place where God's spirit dwells. The temple is back there, and Ezekiel has a has a vision. He has a vision of God on his throne on, a ch- on, on this, this cart. And this cart has wheels that can turn in any direction. Translation God can go anywhere he wants, and he will always be with his people. So don't lose heart. And yet he says here still this new covenant's to come. You haven't seen nothing yet, folks. I will give you a new heart. That, these great promises and many more like them are the very heart of, the, of biblical Christianity. It's what's what described here is this work of God called the new birth, being born again, right? We see this all over the place, and we see it called by a lot of different names as well, right? And it's called being born of God, born of the Spirit, going from death to life, being made alive in Christ, having eternal life, on and on. Theologians call it the work of regeneration, it's when God produces something new in you that's never been there before. Some, a heart that desires God above all things. He enlightens your eyes. Creates within you longings. Opening up new and glorious possibilities that were unknown before. And as evangelicals, I think we, we struggle in this area. Because we tend to take this, just being born again. And we reduce it down to a singular experience. Right? we tend to do this. Have you been born again? You know, that time way back when, right? No, that was one time way back then, but it has continuing effects, right? Continuing effects, right? Many people, uh, many different people came to know the Lord in different ways. Some, it was young, they were young like King David. King David says, uh, his own testimony about this, Psalm 22, he says, you, you made me to trust on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Translation, there's never been a time that he didn't know, that he that he can't remember knowing Jesus, knowing God, right? He didn't have the full picture, of course, right? His great, 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 great grandson hadn't come around yet. So he didn't have the fullness of the picture, but he... He was trusting in the Lord to do something that he could not do for himself, right? So maybe, 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 also we see stories of people that that were very, that was much older. People like um, Zacchaeus, the wee little man sitting on, sitting in the sycamore tree, right? He trusts in Jesus there. We see people like Paul. Paul is on a road to Damascus. Why? Because he's going to persecute Christians when he gets there. And then flash of light, Jesus appears to him and everything changes. Right? He wasn't a kid when this happened. He was a fully functioning member of society. A leader advancing in Judaism beyond everybody else in his class. And yet he comes to know Jesus. Right? Later on, we see examples in church history. Augustine sitting in a garden villa after much thought, deliberation, wrestling with these desires. He desires these things to be, to be gratified in his flesh. And, and yet he realizes that his heart is restless Just as he says later on in his confessions, he says our hearts are restless and they will be restless until they rest in you, Lord God. Right? Luther was called to the Lord in his study. John Wesley on the balcony of a church. John Newton, he was lashed to the wheel of a ship in the middle of a storm at sea. Charles Spurgeon at the age of 16 goes walking in on a snowy day to this primitive Methodist church. And the lay backup preacher comes up there and preaches a very simple sermon about, about John chapter three and looking to Jesus. And, he, and so Wesley's sitting back in the back and he hears this man say, look to Jesus. And he sees, he sees Spurgeon sitting there. He says, this young man looks miserable. Look to Jesus, young man. Look to him. And that day he did. All different kinds of stories. C.S. Lewis on a bus. Chuck Colson in his car. I read of a man who heard a a sermon by John Flavel, a preacher, um, when he was a boy. Eighty years later, he's sitting on a hill and he's thinking about things. And this sermon comes back to him. And that old man became a new man in Christ that day. For some people, it was a long process like C.S. Lewis. For others, they can sing like John, um, like John Newton, uh, the hour they first believed. Some were born in the midst, some are born again in the midst of a crisis. Others, no crisis at all. The new birth comes in the midst of many different experiences, but the point is not the experience. The point is the effect that it causes and the one who gives it. So let's talk about that now. Let's talk about the effect, number two. We talked about the nature of of our conversion. Let's talk about the effect of our conversion. God sovereignly produces in us a supernatural love for Christ and the joy of Christ in us. Look at verse 8. It says, whom having not seen, you love, though though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory joy inexpressible and full of glory. I'm just going to keep that up here. Is that okay with everybody? Thank you. I told Bob, I was like, of all the days to get dry mouth. Fun times. All right, so the people that Peter is writing to here, they're being led through tremendous difficulty. They're being forced to give up and suffer so much because they love someone that they've never seen Isn't that interesting? Sure, millions of people, millions of people go through difficulty because of love, right? If you don't believe it, go to the movies. Almost every single one of those stories is about somebody who went through some kind of difficulty because of love. Spoiler alert, right? Some have even given up their lives because of someone they love whom they've seen. But these suffering people, here in this passage, Peter is writing to them, they are suffering because they love someone. They love this Jesus of Nazareth whom they have not seen. And they love him, though they have not seen him, they love him infinitely more than anything or anyone else that they have seen. That is strange, folks. That the strongest love and attachment in world history would be toward an unseen Savior. John has so much to say about this in 1 John. I'm just going to read you a couple of highlights, okay? Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Chapter 4, verse 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him, right? And then 5, verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What would cause these people to whom Peter is writing— What would cause them to endure such sufferings, to let go of all that's dear to them, to give up so much of things that are seen, all for a savior that's unseen? These people would have seemed crazy in the eyes of the world, but what has happened to them has also happened to every person who has come to the Lord Jesus. You see, the supernatural fountain of love and joy, far greater than anything this world can offer, has come to them inexpressible and glorious joy. That's what we see right here in in our passage today, right? Verse 8, it says, inexpressible and glorious joy. So what does that mean? Well, we know that Christians can experience times of intense joy, intense delight. Think of David, right? The ark's being brought into Jerusalem, and David's there dancing in his linen ephod, right? We've experienced moments, maybe not visibly that way, right? But but at least internally where that joy was so intense in Christ. We felt that way from time to time. But in the Bible, you see that kind of joy mixed with these other emotions, emotions that seem contradictory at first, right? For instance, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians uh, 6, verse 10, he says, of being sorrowful, but always rejoicing. Think about that. Sorrowful, but always rejoicing. That's what it's like for people that are going through a tremendous trial in Christ, like Peter is talking about in our passage. Clearly, Peter isn't talking about just natural good feelings, like the way that we feel, the way that we feel after somebody told a good joke, right? Like the way that we feel, about, feel after a good day, or the way we feel after the Bulldogs. I mean, our favorite team wins, Right? Sorry, that one slipped out. My bad. That's not even, it's not even in the manuscript. It's crazy. Uh, Yeah. Clearly, Peter's not talking about these things, right? Especially about the Bulldogs winning, because that's kind of few and far in between. Right? He says, "This this is the kind of joy that the world puts in place of the joy the Bible's talking about. This is the kind of joy that says, will you give to me somebody perfectly lovable? Sure, I'll love them. You give me um, wonderful circumstances, sure, right? (laughs) Uh, Sure, you give me wonderful circumstances, and sure, I'll be joyful, right? But God says something different, doesn't he, friends? God says, I, the one who is supremely lovable, the one who is supremely and perfectly joyful, I have chosen to love you who are miserable and perfectly unlovable, right? Yet God in his grace and his mercy says, I've chosen to pour out my love on you. And he says, I will produce in you such a love for someone that you've never seen, by the way, that this love will dwarf all other forms of earthly love. Such a love that your love for father, mother, sister, brother, that it will pale in comparison. It will seem like hatred by comparison. He says, "Also, I'll give you such a joy that your circumstances, as dramatic and terrible as they may be, they can't shake this joy that I'm going to give you. It'll be such a joy that even when you suffer for my name'sake, that no one can take away your joy because it's found in Me. This is the One who upholds the universe by the word of His power, and so if that is the case, and He promises to do uh, to do this in us, how secure are we? Very secure." this is what brought these people through their fiery trials because of their faith without, because, I'm sorry, just as without faith, just as faith without works is dead, so also faith without a heart is dead as well. The joy that Peter's talking about is something deeper, far more fundamental than what this world can offer. It's a joy that stands firmly upon a solid rock safe from the sorrows and the trials of life. We may have to struggle. We may have to go through difficult times. We may even weep over the things that are happening in this world. And you know what Jesus did too? But even on the cross, there was this joy, Hebrews says, that was set before him. The joy of God. Joy, as we talked about last week, the the fact that he was part of the Godhead. This love that is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. And that love for his father. And also loving what his father loves. That his father, that they love. Jesus loves you. And with that joy, not just for what we could bring to him. No, but what he could produce in us. With that joy set before him, nothing could take it from him. Even the cross. And he says, I will produce this kind of love and this kind of joy in you. That is good news. His his joy, the joy of Christ, transforms our outlook on life, our outlook on the world. Why? Because, please hear me, maybe even write this down. First and foremost, joy is ultimately about the enjoyment of God. First and foremost, for the Christian, joy is first and foremost the enjoyment of God enjoying God forever in Jesus Christ. Remember Peter? I'm sorry, let's, remember, let's go back a little bit. Let's go, you remember Paul and Silas? They were arrested and put in the, the jail in Philippi. What were they doing there in the cell? They were singing. And not just singing, they were singing. You know what I'm saying? They were rejoicing. They were singing hymns of praise to God, who was with them, by the way, just as He promised in Matthew 28. Peter and John, when they're arrested in the, for preaching in the name of Jesus, they're beaten. They leave the Sanhedrin doing what? Rejoicing, for they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. That's love, that's joy. A little bit later, after our passage here in First Peter 4, verses 12-13, it says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing was happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Rejoice in them. Robert Layton writes this. He says, Christianity banishes delights and pleasures of sin, but is to exchange them for this joy that unspeakably surpasses them. It calls men from sordid and base delights to those that are pure delights indeed. It calls them in, drink no longer from the puddle. Here are the crystal streams of the living fountain. That's good. This is what it means to rejoice in the Lord. It's turning from fleeting pleasure of sin to full and eternal joy in Christ. Peter talks about it here in verse 8 as being joy inexpressible because who can express it? If you've felt that joy, you know. There's not really words that you can put in into a sentence that will exp- fully describe it. You might get a glimpse of it here and there, but we can't adequately describe that. But oh, Christian, if you are in Christ... You know that feeling. You know that joy that Christ has put in you. When stormy winds are blowing, we feel that solid rock beneath our feet. Or as J.C. Ryle put it, and I love this, he says, It is joy to be able to face the facts, all the facts square in the face. Joy to be able to know and to think and be unafraid. Right? That's what Zechariah prophesied at the birth of John the Baptist. That we, being delivered from our enemies, would serve God without fear. The security that we have here. Every human being craves this kind of joy, right? Because this is what we were made for right? This is what God tells Jeremiah when he, he says, Jeremiah, go get this linen belt. Go buy it in the marketplace. And he says, great. Put it, hide it in the rocks down by the river. So Jeremiah goes and does that. Comes, he sends him back later on. Go back, get, pick up the linen belt. He picks it up and it's destroyed. It's ruined. It's worthless. He says, this is, this is my people Israel. As the belt was made to cling to the waist, so Israel was made to cling to me. And friends, Romans 9, Romans 10 tell us that we Gentiles have been grafted in. We are Israel. And we were made to cling to him. To cling to him as a belt was made to cling to the waist. And this joy that that we have in him is ours. It is ours in Jesus Christ. And now and again, it will bubble up to the surface and it will bring us moments of intense delight so that we are overcome with a sense of wonder. But much more important than that, through thick and thin, no matter what happens, we have this joy that is always under us, always around us, and supporting us. How right is Peter then to say in verse three of our passage, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us this gift. All right, so finally, how can this joy be ours? How can we find this joy? We've considered the nature of of conversion. It's the visible result of being inwardly born again through Jesus Christ. We talked about the effect of conversion. This is the supernatural love for Christ and the joy of Christ that he's produced in us. And so now we come to the cause. We've hinted at this along the way. So shocking, surprise, surprise. The cause of our conversion is God himself. The cause of our conversion is God himself. Verse three, back, back here again. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his abundant mercy, he has, he, he has begotten us again. God has done this. It's God's work. God makes an act of the will and chooses to do this. From eternity past, he set set his affairs in order to do his will in this way. That you would know Jesus Christ. This is his work. It's his will. It's his choice. This is the reason that people are born again. This is absolutely essential to Christianity. Because this is not just something I'm saying. This is something the Bible says over and over and over again. Right? Right? We talked already about Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, where he says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make the difference, God says. I'm going to take the heart of stone. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. He does that, not us. So therefore, when we think about our conversion, we think about the new birth being born again. It should cause us and direct us in praise to God. Right? Even Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us this, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, that word that, by the way, in the Greek is actually pointing back to both grace and faith. That wrecked me in seminary because I was trying to figure this out. I couldn't get my head around it. (laughs) And I went to a professor, Dr. Mahoney, and I said, Dr. Mahoney, I, I can't make sense of this. He says, Justin. What does it say? He said, you've looked at it. You've looked at it in the original language. What does it say? I was like, well, that refers. He's like, okay, there you go. You know, so I'm thankful for people like that. Uh, make me, because self-discovery really does mean a lot, doesn't it? For somebody to put you through your paces and for you to see that for yourself. I'm, man, I'm, I love that. So God has said this numerous times, right? That, that, he, that, he, that he's the one that's gonna do this and this should lead us. To praise him. Now, we're not to give praise to ourselves because of our faith, right? It's not that what we've done. That's what Ephesians 2.9 says, right? Not a not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Right? Paul says, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses, because my weaknesses are what display Christ most clearly. Because it shows the power doesn't come from me. The power doesn't come from preaching or a preacher, it comes from the word. So the beauty of this then is that if if the cause of our conversion is God himself, then that puts our salvation, our conversion, in the most secure place ever. Nothing can affect our salvation. Why? Because it's God's doing. And Jesus himself said it. He said, the Father who gives all those that... All those the Father gives me are mine, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, no one will snatch them out of his hand. So we're in Christ's hands. We're in the Father's hands. We are secure, friends. Your salvation, if you are in Christ, it can't go anywhere because Christ is holding it fast. That song that Ms. Andrew sings is so beautiful. He will hold you fast. And so, if you're in Christ, you are eternally safe and secure in Him. If you're not a Christian, you may find this puzzling, maybe even a little concerning. Hold up, Justin. You're telling me, I, one, I must be born again. Two, this is the most important thing in the world. And three, I can't do it. You're telling me this is important. You're telling me that I need this. And you're telling me I have no way of being able to do that for myself. This is America, right? So, what do I do? You're telling me that I'm helpless? I'm I'm not telling you, friend. God's telling you that you're helpless. Yes, we are helpless. And I want you to see this, that God, the God of the Bible, the the author of the Bible, (sighs) intends this difficult truth drive you to himself because he wants you for his own. He desires to know you and to love you and to make much of himself through your transformed life for his glory. You can't, we can't do this ourselves. We can't just roll into a hospital and say, hey, I think I need to give myself a heart transplant today. Can I just, just line up the tools for me? That's fine, I'll be good. I'll see you guys later, close the doors, right? That doesn't work that way. We have to go to the doctor and say, Doctor, I can't help myself. I need a new heart. I need you to do this for me. Please fix me. Please give me a heart transplant. We don't, we don't tell God, well, just give me the Bible, just give me some friends and give me uh, some, some good luck in my life and I'll be okay, I'll be fine. Just let me do my thing. No, we go to God and we say, God, I can't change myself. I can't make myself new. I can't make myself love you. I can't make myself obey your commands. I cannot pull myself by my own, by my own bootstraps and do this. God, I need you. God, please do this in me. I need you. And so this truth drives us to what the Bible calls the mercy of God. Look back in verse three. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us, begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God is merciful. Not only is he able to do such a work, he is abundantly willing he wants to do this. He desires to do this. He delights in doing such the work. He is, and he is not in the business of turning away anyone who comes to him. So this is the problem. When we talk about this kind of doctrine, we automatically assume that that means that means this means that anybody that believes this has no desire for people to come, to come to know Christ. No! We want people to know Jesus because God wants people to know Jesus. We don't do it out of a sense of guilt. We do it because we love God and God is, God is glorified greatly in his gospel being obeyed. God is merciful. This is what the Bible says in Romans ten thirteen. right Warren? Romans ten thirteen that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I say that because we've been memorizing that verse together. He's doing a great job back there. I'm so thankful for our tech team. They put up with me too. It's a work. This is a work that God delights in. He delights in doing this work and He doesn't turn anyone away that comes to Him. In fact, if you are in this room and you're desiring to know God, you're desiring to to be in Christ today, I submit to you, based on the testimony of this book, that God is doing that work already. Isn't that beautiful? No man comes to me, Jesus says, except the Father draws them. So that means that God is doing a work in your heart. The God of the Bible uses this teaching to draw us to himself, the author and the finisher of our faith. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There is no other way to happiness for which we are made. If you want to get warm you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you, want to, uh, if you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not the sort of prize which God would, if he chose, hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you if you are not you will remain dry. It's his work by his will, according to his mercy. And he turns away none that draw near to him. So as we talked at the beginning, we considered that question, what is Christianity all about? Friends, Christianity is all about the fact that the God of the Bible is, is the creator of all things. He is the just and gracious creator of all things, including you and me. He made us to know him to reflect him, to display his character and his glory for the entire creation. But we failed in that. We failed in our ancestor, Adam. And so because of that, then we are sinful by nature. But the God, the just and gracious creator of all things looked upon hopelessly sinful people like you and me, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. God, the God-man, to bear his wrath against our sin on Christ, on the cross. And to show his power over death. And the resurrection. So that all who turn from their sin. And themselves. And trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And as the Lord. Who abundantly satisfies their souls. God will reconcile them to himself. They will live to please him. To, to know him. And they experience the promise of eternal life. Enjoying God. Now and forever. This is what Christianity is all about. That we see, not just that, that we understand, but that we understand on this heart level that we, where we see what scripture testifies, that Jesus is supremely satisfying. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our conversion. What a good gift it is that you give us, Lord, we couldn't do it on our own. And so thank you that you are delighted to accomplish that work in us. And so, Father, as we come to this time of response, Lord, as we respond to your word, I pray that you would produce repentance, that you would produce faith in us, Lord, that you would be glorified and that your name and your renown would be the desire of our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.